I have asked for this radio and television time tonight for the purpose of announcing that we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. The following statement is being issued at this moment in Washington and Hanoi. At 12.30 Paris time today, January 23, 1973, the agreement on ending the war and restoring peace in Vietnam was initialed by Dr. Henry Kissinger on behalf of the United States and Special Advisor Lee Duc Tho on behalf of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. The agreement will be formally signed by the parties participating in the Paris Conference on Vietnam on January 27, 1973 at the International Conference Center in Paris. Thank you very much for joining the Nixon Now podcast. I'm your host, John from Avroidas. Today marks the 43rd anniversary of the Paris Peace Accords and the end of American combat operations in the Vietnam War. Here with us to discuss this historic event and the history of the Vietnam War is Bruce Hershenson. Hershenson serves as a director of motion, served as a director of motion picture for the American Information Agency and later as deputy special assistant to the president. He was selected as one of the 10 most outstanding men in the federal government he also received the second highest civilian award, the Distinguished Service Medal. He's the author of several books, including one about the subject we're discussing today. It's called An American Amnesia, How the U.S. Congress Forces Surrenders of South Vietnam and Cambodia. Thank you, Bruce, for joining us. Uh, my pleasure to do that, Jonathan. If you could start by giving the audience a little background, um, how and why did the United States become involved um, after the French left Indochina? Because we saw it as the communists wanting to cross the uh, the line between the North and South and take over the South. It was the idea of defending an Asian country from being forced into a communist government. And I think that, uh, look, to, to make a summation of it, I think that would be not only short but accurate. Did, why did the... Um, President Johnson in 64 feel the need uh, to escalate uh, our involvement there rather than just try to continue. because Well, because he wanted to win. He wanted to win the war. He said he didn't want to be a president that's going to lose a war. Uh, when you say, you could ask that about any president who escalated. Uh, you could ask that about FDR. In World War II, you could ask it certainly about President Bush regarding uh, regarding Afghanistan, Iraq. It's the idea is to win, unless you have a president who doesn't want to win, which I believe, Jonathan, we have right now. Why Why did Johnson have such a difficult time uh, ending that war and winning the war? Because of tremendous de- demonstrations. It was it was on a, uh, oh, a monthly or so basis where you'd see Pennsylvania have I, I maybe maybe it wasn't every month but it was sure often enough where you would see Pennsylvania Avenue covered from where the uh, the Capitol building is all the way to the White House uh, with demonstrators make love not war hey a l b j how many kids did you kill today. Uh, all kinds, and then I, I'm leaving out all of the uh, obscene ones, and there were plenty of them. I won't leave out the fact that the doors and, and windows of the Justice Department were smashed in. I'm not telling you stuff I read. I'm telling you stuff I lived through. 
1968, uh, President Johnson decides not to uh, seek uh, another term for presidents for the mm -hmm. president uh, in the presidency. Um, mm -hmm. Nixon uh, gets elected in November of that year. What is Nixon's uh, vision for uh, Vietnam Vietnam War policy? I can't tell you day by day, but I can tell you that he never had what has become one of those pieces of history that is totally inaccurate, that he had a secret plan to end the war, and he made a statement, and I believe it was either AP or UPI, because I held on to that thing for decades, uh, of a, a statement of, I did not have, I do not have a secret plan, and if I do get a secret plan, I would tell Lyndon immediately. Uh, but it was some of it wasn't Hubert Humphrey himself. It was people on Hubert Humphrey's staff who were saying that he said he had a secret plan. That was just not true. He never did. However, what he did do during the first year of the uh, of his administration was was a planned Vietnamization. As, as he called it. Vietnamization means that on sort of a little by little by little, but altogether a great deal of change from the, Viet, from the uh, U.S. Uh, fighting more than many of the Vietnamese, it would be the Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese, that would take over the role of the United States. I don't mean in any way to imply that the Vietnamese were doing well. They needed a great deal not only of training, but they needed a great deal of armaments. And how did he prevail over those domestic political forces that broke the LBJ presidency? How did he, how did he overcome their loud voices to sustain uh, his policy for Vietnam? Well, it was pretty rough. Uh, he had a pretty rough time, and he knew we would have a pretty rough time. The, uh, the uh, loud voices didn't stop when he came into office. There were plenty of those demonstrations during President Nixon's administration. The first one that I saw was on January the uh, the uh, the twentieth of uh, the Victory Night, his inaugural day, his uh, his first inaugural. There was a heck of a demonstration, and uh, I remember the oh, I remember some of the placards which were pretty vicious, and uh, you live with it. And he knew he was going to have to live with it, but he did. And he wanted to bring about success. And uh, the uh, the uh, January the twenty third of uh, of uh, seventy three of that, that that is his inaugural second inaugural uh, year. Uh, he he announced that the Paris Peace Accords had been signed or initialed, and they would be signed within the next number of days. That was the 23rd, so that had to be the 20, when was it, 27th that they were uh, signed, but they were initialed then. And the Paris Peace Accords were really, really, in effect, a surrender document for the North Vietnamese. And you were asking very valuable questions about about how did he surmount it. I'll tell you how little he was able to surmount it. The way he brought them back to the to uh, to Paris, the North Vietnamese, to sign a document that was totally in the uh, uh, in the favor of South Vietnam. Uh, as a matter of fact, what we did was to uh, we, meaning the United States, did 
was to plagiarize our own First Amendment, add a lot of liberties to it, and guarantee all of them to the South Vietnamese. It was uh, it was like a dupe, a duplicate of uh, of uh, the First Amendment, with a great deal added to it. Uh, I'm getting away a little bit from the question, the direct question that you asked, but let me let, let me uh, go into that a little bit more. The the plan that he had was to bomb the devil out of Hanoi and Haiphong to bring the North Vietnamese back to Paris to sign the agreement that he wanted them to sign. And we did. We bombed the devil out of uh, anything that was, had to do with, uh, with uh, the military of North Vietnam uh, or those things that were used for the military in Vietnam, in, in North Vietnam. The media went nuts against it. They were calling him insane, a madman, uh, all kinds of quotes that I, I don't have in front of me, but I certainly remember that that uh, there was, I forgot who the journalist was, Joseph Kraft, I think it was. Well, maybe I better not say that. Maybe it wasn't him. He said, this is war by tantrum. That's an easy one to remember. And uh, it, well, Washington Post was extreme. Well, the ones that you would imagine, Washington Post, New York Times, they really gave him the devil and acted like he was a, a crazy man. And uh, Walter Cronkite was terrible, and Eric Severide was They were all against it and saying that it would, uh, it would do more harm than ever do any good. Well, it did a lot of good. What it did was got the signature of the North Vietnamese, of the Viet Cong, which, of course, were really a part of the uh, North Vietnam, uh, the Vietnamese. And the uh, and uh, we signed, of course, as well. And uh, the, the deal was done. Uh, that was January the 27th, that it was signed by all parties. And that was of uh, 1973. We, uh, and I was working at the White House, called it VV Day, like we had called... VJ Day, VJ Day, because it was uh, victory over Japan, and we had called even earlier than that VE Day over, that was victory over Europe, and so we called this VV Day. And uh, and indeed, it was. Why? You'll notice, but go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask, why couldn't, I think Nixon often thought about um, bombing earlier within, his, within the administration. Why, why did the escalation uh, of bombing, um, and not the, not only the escalation of bombing, but why did it taking uh, why did it take the North Vietnamese so long to co finally come uh, to the to the peace table? Well, the reason it took so long, I suppose, is because we didn't uh, rebomb. Certainly not to the point that we did during December of 1972, and um, uh, there was so much dissent. It was a pretty, I got to say, it was a pretty rough decision. He not only got the criticism of, of the media to a tremendous extent, one of the things that lives on today is the myth that we bombed on Christmas. If you look under the, the index of any book under the, um, any book on Vietnam under, excuse me, it would have to be under C, you could, you could find the Christmas bombing. Well, we didn't bomb on Christmas. This, this, this one gets me a lot. 
because it was meant to reflect something mean and miserable and anti-religious that we did when they called it the Christmas bombing. We started bombing in December of 1973. The president wanted to have a ceasefire over Christmas. And he asked a number of people on his staff if we felt there should be a ceasefire on uh, Christmas there, or at least no firing of a, uh, that we wouldn't do any firing over Christmas. And I'll just say for sure, uh, a number of people sent in their answers, and it was none of my business what anyone said. I certainly said, uh, by all means, bomb on Christmas. It isn't a Christian nation. It's a, the government is totally atheist, and they always use their own holidays to do a bombing. We bombed the South Vietnamese on Tet in 1968, they don't care about these things. And with the, what I said, they would they'd probably do, do great harm, come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, use it for that. Anyway, he certainly decided against against my advice, and uh, he uh, uh, he called for a, uh, a 36-hour uh, bombing halt. Let's see, it was, uh, I think it was six hours on one end of the 24th, that Christmas Eve, all day the t- 25th, and then another six hours, the beginning of the 26th. He called for a bombing halt. Uh, and then when we resumed it, we were going to have another bombing halt for New Year's. Didn't need to. The North Vietnamese said they would come as long as we'd stop bombing. And the president had already said uh, that we would stop bombing if they would come to Paris. And that's how we got it. How did how did the Vietnam War policy play uh, playing with the larger foreign policy initiatives, mainly rapprochement with the People's Republic of China and uh, detente and arms control with the Soviet Union? I can't really answer that question. The focus was so much on Vietnam itself. If the president was here, he certainly would know the answer to that one. I really don't know how it played with them. I know it, how it played in the United States and so to millions and millions and millions of others. Not big deal. Not a big deal. It was the Congress sure wasn't celebrating because most of them had participated in anti-U.S. policy demonstrations against Johnson, for sure, and against Nixon, for sure. And so they were known as the ones who were against our policy in Vietnam. Certainly the entertainment uh, industry wasn't in celebration. A lot of the bureaucracy of D.C. wasn't in celebration. The one, the one bureaucracy that was, and I shouldn't say one as though there were no others, that isn't true. But the Department of Defense was certainly in celebration. And I know some of the people there who did indeed call it VV Day. And... Um, and some of the uh, uh, more conservative departments, the Central Intelligence Agency, those that were really involved in, in the war, uh, they, they were certainly tremendously pleased at what President Nixon had achieved. In American Amnesia, you write that the Paris Accords were called a ceasefire, but it was a great deal more than a ceasefire. Exactly. Could you explain that? Sure. President didn't want to put the, his thumb in their eye. Uh, we were going to get the part of the part of the agreement was to get our prisoners of war home, and they probably would be home for a number of months. And they weren't there; they weren't home until uh, March, and this was in January the Sunday courts. And I said, "Why don't we just call?" I, I asked. I mean, I, I just asked, "Why not 
call it a victory. That's what we wanted. That's what we got. And he said he isn't going to. He isn't going to. Uh, trying to think of the word that he used. It was a particular word. But anyway, it was the idea of you're not going to. You don't do those things. You take your victories, and while particularly they are holding Americans as prisoners, take it easy. Don't start trouncing on them with words. You 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 already have precisely what you wanted. The war was done, and the freedom was was guaranteed by the uh, for South Vietnam by the North Vietnamese government. I mean, not bad. Leave it alone, and don't make a. Uh, God, I wish I could think of the word that I heard him use, and I just can't think of it offhand. Many of many of Nixon's critics, or some of them, um, uh-huh. point out that the '73 deal was only marginally better than uh, than, this, than the than the deal that the, the ceasefire that LBJ attained in 1968. How you know, you- I'm just saying. I, I got to tell you, Jonathan, to hear this again. It's just the same old reminder. It's it's like there is no way that he could do the right thing, except we won. But they just say, oh, well, it was just as good as what LBJ... I mean, what you just said is what they say. They will never give this man credit for anything. They won't even give their own man, their own guy, LBJ, credit for the things that he did do in Vietnam. They just won't. It's their policy. When I say they, I'm talking about a very big, very expansive they who just won't give them anything. You can see a reflection in today's election. You ever watch a a Mrs. Clinton talk and and hear the things that she blames the Republicans for? It goes on forever. It It truthfully goes on forever. And I would love it to stop, but it won't. And the only thing that Congress did was more than words. They stopped. What? Excuse me. Let me just tell you one uh, one part of the Paris Peace Accords was that if the either side lost uh, lost equipment, military equipment. In other words, they were attacking the other side, and it wouldn't be South Vietnam attacking the North Vietnamese because that wasn't the, what's even started or developed in the war. It was the United States that really attacked North Vietnam in the December bombing. But if the if the North Vietnamese uh, uh, did attack South Vietnam and South Vietnam lost equipment, we would give them their equipment on a one-to-one basis. They lost a bullet, they'd get a bullet. Lost a helicopter, they'd get a helicopter. So on and so on and so on. And that was a promise of the guarantee of the United States. So we sort of had all, all things sort of taken care of there, because we knew the North Vietnamese would uh, would do that. Well, they indeed they did start to do that after the president left office. When the president resigned from office, they were they made the statement. It's in print in one of their memoirs. I certainly do have it. Uh, that uh, that. Uh, uh, President Ford was weak, and they tried to to bomb like a a village. He didn't respond with equipment or any of the things that he said we we promised we would respond with on a one-to-one basis. Didn't respond. Another village, another village, another one. Finally, a city, and on and on. And that's when they knew 
they were going to have it. Then they were going to have Saigon. And indeed, they did get Saigon. It took two and a quarter years. By President Ford, and I know this date with absolute clarity, on April the 10th of 1975, made a speech to a joint session of the Congress at night, TV time, uh, the, um, uh, the best time on calendar. And he asked them to please give the aid that the United States had promised. And he warned that Cambodia would surrender and that uh, Vietnam would surrender. Many of the members of the Congress walked out to talk in front of microphones uh, in, uh, uh, in the redunda of the Capitol. Uh, any of them, many of them, they said, absolutely not. That aid is not going to go to Vietnam. We're out of there. And I mentioned April the 10th, and it's seared in my memory, because just seven days later, April the 17th, Cambodia surrendered, and the genocide began. And on April the 30th, Saigon surrendered. And the, the, the re-education camp started, and the, uh, the boat people started. And to this very, very day, there's at least a half million South Vietnamese underneath the South China Sea. If we could, if we could go into some of those actions by Congress, uh, the 93rd Congress, uh, for example, as you write, passed the Eagleton and Case Church Amendments, as well as the War Powers Act. Could you, could you go into each a little bit and, and uh, navigate? I could go into each on the same, on, on the same uh, sentence by telling you that they can't. And i got to tell you right now, and I think you may know that I'm a very, very much an opponent of President Obama, he can do on foreign policy what he pleases. And I, I quote, and I, I will quote it to anyone who cares to look this thing up, look up the 1936, the 1936 Supreme Court decision called United States versus Curtis Wright Export Corporation. In fact, I'm sure I got it right. U.S. versus Curtis Wright. Curtis would be spelled, I'm quite positive, I'm positive I remember, C-U-R-T-I-S-S. And you'll see that it's the president alone who works on, who is able to decide what to do on foreign policy. Of course that War Powers Act is unconstitutional. And there was an act 10 years after War Powers Act that made it... That made it uh, almost by definition unconstitutional. It was an act that was called uh, Chada. Uh, wait a minute. I don't know. It was a guy named Chada, but it was a, uh, something to do with immigration and naturalization. But anyway, the the decision was that uh, the uh, the, con- the Congress had no right. Certainly not one uh, one act one. Uh, they even used it as an example, but they didn't say they were using it as an example. That they, the, whereas the president would have the right to veto, there is no such thing as a legislative veto, and that's what the War Powers Act would count on. But for anyone listening to this who wants to see why those acts of the Congress were so controversial, they were controversial because because people weren't paying attention to what what the Supreme Court had already said as early as 1936, which certainly uh, made it the law of the land. 
and it was considered settled law because it was so long ago. I'm going to ask you to play counterfactual historian here for a minute. Had President Nixon been able to stay in office and govern mm-hmm. effectively with that 49-state mandate given to him in 1972, mm-hmm. do you think that would have changed the outcome of what happened in Vietnam and Indochina at large? Change it into what? Change the outcome. I mean, had he won in 19, had he been able to carry out his mandate, his 49-state mandate, yeah. had he been able to save, effectively save Oh, there's no qu- let, let me just tell you about a conversation I had with him. I said, what would you do? This was after the surrender. I said, what would you do if you were still president uh, and uh, the Congress wouldn't, wouldn't appropriate the funds? And it meant, and you knew that it meant, as President Ford obviously did know what it meant, it meant that it was going to be the surrender of Phnom Penh and Cambodia and the surrender of uh, Saigon and South Vietnam. What would you do to prevent that? He said, I'd beat the devil out. I would bomb. I want, actually, I'd love to be precise on this. And I, there, were, there were decades where I remembered every word. Uh, something about it bombed the devil out of them. I'm not being precise, but very close. And uh, and then when he, uh, as a matter of fact, look, I learned about the 1936 Supreme Court decision from him. That isn't something that I just picked up by myself. And uh, and he 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 said uh, to me that uh, that uh, he picked up the telephone and told the commanding general, "You bomb the devil out of these out of Hanoi and Haiphong again." He's going to say, the commanding general will say, yes, sir, we will. Thank you, sir. And he isn't going to say to the president, wait a minute, do you have the funding from the Congress? Because he has the ability to do that. And as I say, right now, I recognizing, I, I recognize that what I'm saying could have an effect. No, it isn't going to have an effect on President Obama. Obama, he already knows this. I can tell by a lot of the stuff that he does that he knows he can when it gets to, uh, when it gets to uh, foreign affairs. He cannot when it gets to economic or uh, budgetary affairs or those things that are domestic. That's when the Congress uh, is needed for practically every decision that's made. Thank you very much, Bruce, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. For news and information about the legacy of America's 37th president, please visit us at nixonfoundation.org. For the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Jonathan Mavroides signing off.